Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, episode 12. It would be the same as saying, okay, well, I'm not queer, so I can't help queer youth, right? Um, or I'm not African-American, so I can't help um, black youth or whatever the case may be. Um, and that's, I think that's selling short the position you have as a teacher. You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabadoo. Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to episode 12 of the Jabadoo Education Podcast, and I hope you're doing well. I hope you're staying healthy, uh, and I hope that you are Getting into a groove of whatever the fall looks like for you under this COVID-19 pandemic, whether you are completely in person or virtual or a hybrid, uh, the world is a little bit different and so is our teaching. So um, whatever your circumstance is, I know that you are doing the best you can to serve your students as best you can given the circumstances. So kudos to you and please keep it up because we need good teachers. Today, I sit down with Dr. Bonnie Waslick. Uh, She started out her career as a Spanish teacher, and while she was a teacher, she was able to uh, start a group at her school. Uh, At the time, it was called Gay Straight Alliance, but today we would call it an LGBTQ plus group. And we dive into a conversation surrounding what she did with that group and how she facilitated conversations. Uh, And we took away some lessons that we can apply to our general classroom Uh, to make sure that we are serving those students in that population as best as we can. And then we transition a little bit into some of her current research, which is actually really fascinating because she kind of uh, takes two different research projects and kind of molds them together. The first one is uh, she dives into researching uh, women who are victims of domestic violence over in India. Uh, And then she also pulls in together students of color who are experiencing bullying because they identify as queer or questioning. Uh, And what she's finding or what she's hoping to look for in this research is basically saying that violence is not isolated, right? An, An incident of violence is not an isolated incident. There's a before that happens, right? There's things that happen leading up to whatever the violence or bullying, whatever it is. And her goal is to find ways that we can identify those patterns that are emerging and then interrupt them so that we, uh, so the violence does not happen, right? Um, so really cool interest or uh, really cool research that she's doing. And she's actually uh, accumulated it all and put it into a book, which is coming out in a few months. It won't be ready for when this episode launches. But if you're listening to this episode a few months down the road, uh, that book is titled Assemblages of Violence in Education. And there is a link to that book in our show notes page. If uh, when we're talking about that in the conversation, you say, oh, that is kind of interesting. I'm going to go read that. We will make sure that we have everything linked on our show notes page, which you are definitely going to want to check out for this episode. They are at jabadoo.com slash show 12. And you're going to want to go there because Dr. Wazlik absolutely unloads on a bunch of different resources for you to go check out. And instead of you uh, feverishly writing down them while she's saying them, uh, she has actually compiled them oh so generously into a nice little PDF, which you can go get again on our show notes page at jabadoo.com slash show 12. And on top of that, we've got a Facebook group that we would love for you to join Uh, If you've been listening for a while, the group is small right now, but we are looking to grow it as fast as possible, mainly because 
we really feel like the information that we're presenting here, the idea of getting current research into the hands of teachers is just such a vital conversation to keep going. And we want to get that ball rolling as good as possible or as fast as possible. Uh, so if you can go join that group, that is over at facebook.com slash groups slash Jabadoo, or there's a link to it on our show notes page once again at jabadoo.com slash show 12. All right, let's get into my conversation with Dr. Bonnie Waslick. All right, so today we have Dr. Bonnie Waslick. Uh, she is the 2012 recipient of the James T. Sears Award, 2016 Outstanding Dissertation Recognition Award from the American Educational Research Association, and in 2018 was inducted into the Kent State University's Hall of Fame for her work with marginalized youth. Dr. Bonnie Waslick, it's such an honor to have you on. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, yeah, quite, uh, I mean, 2018, that's pretty recent. So congratulations on that. Thank you. It's always um, a, a beautiful and, and yet uh, terrifying thing to be recognized by your alma mater <laughs> for uh, your work. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, so we're, we'll, we'll dive into a little bit of, of what you do and what earned you that uh, recognition. But first, can we just take a step back and uh, let us all know, uh, what was your schooling experience? You know, what were some of the, maybe the teachers that influenced you, some of the activities that influenced you? What were you involved in? Um, who are you? Where did you come from? <laughs> Where did I come from? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm currently in the Philadelphia area um, working with Penn State Abington. Um, prior to that, I was in Baltimore and at Loyola University, Maryland. And um, I actually lived most of my life Prior to that moment uh, in Ohio, so Northeast Ohio, um, went to Kent State University for my degrees. And uh, if you know anything about the Ohio area, I was uh, in near Cleveland um, growing up. And so um, as far as my, my educational experience goes, aside from, you know, my um, undergraduate was an undergraduate in Spanish and uh, I have a master's in education and then a PhD in uh, curriculum and instruction. So my my formal training um, has a more of a focus. Uh, actually, I was a Spanish teacher for ten years, um, and absolutely loved it. Before deciding to move uh, from the K twelve classroom to become a university professor, so yeah, and that's uh, it's. I think education is one of those uh, professions that you tend to see that a lot with uh, professors of education. Usually, started out by being a teacher for a few years, which is always always good to to hear that they have those first uh, firsthand experiences instead of just going right from undergraduate to master's to PhD and then being a teacher of education. Yeah, no, I, I think that it's important. And I know when the, they place calls for job positions, that's actually one thing that they like to see is at, you know, at least a couple of years of experience in the K-12 classroom. Um, for me, I had a little bit, I have a little bit more than most um, that I stayed in for 10 years or more than some, I should say. Uh, I actually have a variety of backgrounds. I actually started out my teaching career working um, in a gender academy, so it was all boys um, in Cleveland. And so I had two schools that I worked at during my time there on the east side and the west side of Cleveland, uh, and then moved to uh, the Kent area. So I worked for the middle school and the high school teaching Spanish, and then moved to um, the Medina area, and that was just teaching high school. So really moving from an urban context to a, a rural slash suburban context to a much more suburban context. So I've sort of worked across uh, platforms and possibilities within the K-12 system as well. 
Yeah, which I'm, I'm sure gives you a, a nice perspective to have all those different uh, experiences. Absolutely. Yeah. And while you were uh, teaching, uh, you also uh, did some work with LGBT youth, right? And some of the programs that uh, you helped there. So why don't you tell us about um, kind of what you uh, did? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so when I was working um, in Kent City Schools, I worked to form what's at the time was called a Gay-Straight Alliance. Um, now the language around it is a Genders and Sexualities Alliance, since Gay-Straight leaves out um, gender uh, expression and identity and things like that. Uh, but I had started a Gay-Straight Alliance that was inclusive of middle school and high school students at the time. And then when I moved positions to uh, work at the next district, I've been there for about a year uh, and I had some students approach myself and another teacher. When the students approached me, they said, well, we Googled you and we found out, of course, on um, the internet, uh, being our friend and our nemesis in the world, <laughs> um, I think sometimes of education especially. And they said, you know, we found out that you ran this at your last district. Is this something that you can do for us? Um, and so absolutely, I said, sure. That's, it's important, I think, that students have an outlet to express themselves and to have deep conversations and, and things like that. So I did that with, uh, co-advised that group for, I want to say, about seven, six or seven years um, okay. prior to moving to the academy um, or to the university level. And that our, the group grew. I think we started out maybe with 10 to 15 students. Um, and then we had toward the end anywhere between um, 60 and 100, depending on um, the, the meeting type. Right. So we had some larger meetings that more students were attracted to and some smaller meetings um, that we had sort of the regular group that was that was coming on a normal basis. So. Gotcha. And I guess that it's definitely it's 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 sometimes a tough uh, conversation to have, especially with youth who maybe not aren't aren't ready to have that conversation. Right. Um, so I guess how did you navigate uh, at the middle school and high school level that conversation of um, openness and acceptance and, uh, you know, the the concept of, uh, you know, like you said, the gay straight alliance and, and allies now? How, how did that all work in order to work together? <laughs> No, um, absolutely. So I think, um, and after, actually, I should sort of back up and say that my next step when I got to um, Baltimore is that I was working with um, a group of middle school youth in the city um, that did not have a Genders and Sexualities Alliance. The point was not to be a Genders and Sexualities Alliance, but yet to be a space where students could express themselves that may yet be queer or questioning, um, but it was just an, an open space. And so I'm, I'm putting that in there um, to come back to in a minute here, I think what's important is one of the things I loved about running a Genders and Sexualities Alliance uh, is that I never asked uh, where anyone sat on the spectrum of sexual orientation, gender expression, or gender identity. Um, it was always interesting to me. Sometimes I would have colleagues that would ask me who's gay, who's straight, um, you know, who's, who's gender queer, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because we never asked that question. Um, if students wanted to have that conversation, that's something that they wanted to have. They came to it on their own time. Um, but if they didn't, they didn't. And what was always interesting were other adults, not the students, but other adults as they came into the room um, that would sort of look around and, and try and identify students um, for what how they felt that they might fall into a particular identity. Um, and what was always interesting about it from my perspective is that it didn't matter. Whoever showed up, showed up. Um, whoever was supposed to be there was there uh, in any of the groups that I've ever run. And so having an open conversation 
from that perspective is not that hard because whenever somebody's ready to have it, you just have programming for kids who happen to be there um, with an understanding that there's an emphasis on questions of gender identity expression or sexual orientations. Uh, and then they can think about things as they want to think about them. Let's not forget that it, they're youth, right? And they're right. in the moment in, in the moments of discovering who they are. Some of them already know who they are, um, but then don't want to share those things. Sure. And so it's not, it was never a difficult conversation because it wasn't one that was forced, um, which is always really significant when you're working with kids. I don't care if it's a genders and sexualities alliance. I don't care if it's a Black United Students group. I don't care if it's student council. Yeah. Um, when you're working with kids, you part of the work that we do is to give them the space to be to breathe and to uh, feel what they need to feel for that moment. And then everything else sort of comes out of that, uh, that respect and care. Yeah. And that's uh, something that you, you kind of hope that you emulate in the classroom as well. Right. Obviously it's, it's great to have these uh, organizations that, that work independently, but to bring that thought process into the classroom. So I guess, um, Two, two, two things to, to kind of just ask you quick. One would be what uh, suggestions would you have? You know, as teachers, you kind of hope that everybody is like, oh, yes, I'm loving and I'm accepting of everybody. But are there any sort of like, strat not necessarily strategies, but just things that we can implement into our classroom to make sure that it is a welcoming place for everybody? Yeah, well, I think first, the first thing that we need to do is sort of push back against this um, I love everyone sort of thing as a teacher. Okay. Um, I think that that's a little bit of a misnomer. Um, it's like asking parents, which one is your favorite child, right? And everyone says, I love all my children. Um, but sometimes you are closer emotionally to one child or another, right? I mean, that's just the reality sure. of being human. And I think part of it is forgiving ourselves for being human and and doing what we learn best by actually being with queer youth or queer people in general, which is sort of the destruction of binaries. So it's not that you have to, either you love all your students or you hate all your students. This is not an either or situation. <laughs> um, and so, and we, we find that with a lot of things, right? Um, if, if you're a good person or a bad person, well, it's not about the binaries. It's not about being a good teacher or a bad teacher. And I think once we push those to the side a little bit, it can actually help us be more authentic in our interactions with students. Um, and then understanding that everybody has bias. And I don't care if it's bias um, against queer people or people of color or any other sort of bias that you might have. Um, we have them, we have them as teachers. So it's, it's more about recognizing the human condition and then saying, well, how am I going to check my bias on a daily basis, um, on, on a weekly basis, sometimes in, in the moments that we have. Um, as educators, we are under a lot of pressure to make a lot of decisions very quickly. And part of those decisions that we have to make is how we move in the world too. And I think that becomes really important in making sure that when we're creating a room that has equity and access in its uh, forefront in what we do as educators, aside from the curriculum and all the other pressures that we have and standardization to say, okay, well, what sort of an environment do I want to create? And then rather than working with binaries, realize that we are human. And part of that realization is saying, okay, well, in my, in my humanness, I do have these <laughs> um, biases. How am I going to be real about them? And then how am I going to check them? And what is that going to look like 
on the ground working with kids. So I think for me, that's always the first thing or the, one of the most significant things that we can do is really um, ask ourselves those hard questions about who we are as people. So don't even ask about the students, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's not about, is this student in front of me queer or questioning and how do I deal with that? It's how do I deal with myself as an educator and who I think that I am and who do I want to be in front of these students? And then are those things, is there a disconnect there? Is there a tension there? And how am I going to deal with that? Yeah. And I, I mean, just personally, I know that in the last, uh, you know, a couple of months, obviously things have been stirred up, uh, especially with, with some of the racial tension, but just in the last, you know, I'd say year, I've, I've become more aware of just the term biases and, and cognitive bias and uh, coming into situations and acting away and then having somebody kind of challenge my biases and it stings a little bit at first, but um, you know, it, it is tough to, you know, just acknowledge because you only have your perspectives, right? So it's really difficult to acknowledge your biases when you only have your perspective. Right. But I think part of, part of what happens, um, Jay Smooth, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen his videos on YouTube, but he had a really interesting segment that I like to show my students um, at the university level. And he's talking about racism specifically, since you brought up racial tensions. Uh -huh. And one of the things that he says is that racism builds up on us because we are exposed to so many um, negative images regarding questions of race throughout our day. And now that social media is so prominent in our lives, it's much more likely that those thoughts and feelings may have build up for some people. Um, and so he, he actually equates it to brushing your teeth. Okay. Um, and this question of, are you brushing your teeth? Are you checking your bias? Um, and, and are you making sure that that's an active part of what you do? Um, so that it's not, I'm a good person, I'm a bad person. It's actually this, this deeper question as to how am I examining who I am or who I think I am. Um, but as much as it stings to have your bias checked a little bit, I can tell you being on the receiving end of that bias, whether it's implicit or explicit, stings as well, right? So sure. Um, sure. for me, it's always this question of, can we make sure that our educators are doing the work that we need them to do um, to be allies or accomplices to our students on a daily basis? Um, you know, and, and students will say to me, well, how do you, how do you do that? And my answer is always, um, you have to, to treat people with respect. I know it sounds like groundbreaking work here, yeah. <laughs> um, but really to, to think about respect and part of that respect that we give people um, is actually just the process of, of checking ourselves um, and hearing people too, right? So um, we might not always want to hear people and take it personally, but I think that's different than hearing people for the suggestions that they might have as to who we are as people. So the critique might be right, but it might not be something that we wanted to take personally as individuals. Um, I think both can happen at the same time. Yeah. Okay. So transitioning then a little bit into um, you're now a professor of education at uh, Penn State Abington, as, as uh, you mentioned, uh, working with college students currently. So um, on top of teaching college students, uh, what are some other uh, projects that you're involved with, um, maybe some, some research that you're doing, uh, some findings that are coming out of it, and uh, again, how it all applies to education. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, as far as other projects, it's, it's a bit of a strain. Um, I don't know if you are aware of this, but there's been this pandemic um, <laughs> going on. No kidding. <laughs> I know. I know. 
which has really uh, been difficult for research. So I'm um, an ethnographer, which means uh, the work that I do is out in the fields, um, working with, thinking with people. Um, and so that has been uh, sort of killed during yeah, this time. Sure. Um, I noticed, I noted prior to this that I was working um, in Baltimore, and so I was working with middle school youth. I was also working on a project um, with the juvenile diversion program um, for, for Baltimore okay. um, and evaluating their program. Uh, and then the last piece that I've sort of that I had been doing was working with women who are survivors of domestic violence in India. And so uh, two of those projects, working with the, the middle school youth and the women who are um, survivors of domestic violence, uh, that has actually come together. I just finished writing a book um, on the findings between those two. And the reason that I wanted to put those two specifically, those two um, groups together, although people might not say like, queer youth of color or queer and questioning youth of color um, and women who are survivors of um, domestic violence in India, how does that go together? <laughs> um, yeah. And the answer is for me as an educator, a lot of it comes down to um, the quest questions of the curriculum and how do we learn and what do we learn? And when I say the curriculum, I am not necessarily just talking about what in my practice we call the formal curriculum, right? So the intended lessons, yep. but uh, we also have other forms of curriculum that we, uh, we discuss. So I'm part of a field called curriculum studies. And we look at not just what's intended, but what's not taught, the null curriculum, um, the hidden curriculum, which is what's learned just through the culture of schooling that is hidden to the people who are a part of it, generally speaking, um, and the, the enacted curriculum. So what is learned by our interactions between each other, between myself and what I learn as a student, between myself and a teacher, um, all of the interactions that happen in school. And so uh, the work, the conclusions that I have been coming to through both of these studies is how does violence move through schools and through communities? Um, specifically, I use the term an assemblage of violence for that. So without getting too far into the weeds of what is an assemblage and um, how, what does that mean in terms of violence and violent interactions, what that basically means is that no single iteration of violence is ever independent. It is always necessarily dependent on past violences, the present um, context, and future interactions that may yet happen. Um, and so it's all knotted. If you can just yeah, think about sure. uh, um, something that's knotted up and, and impossibly entwined and entangled in, in particular ways. And so when we start thinking about it like that, um, it's not just that I had a student that was bullied on Friday. It's a question of the culture of the school. It's a question of what we teach them what we don't teach them, um, all of those messages that are being sent and received, not just um, by a, a marginalized student, uh, somebody who might be a queer youth in school, but um, for example, but also everyone else too, right? So if you are a cisgender straight student, um, you are going to be facing uh, similar, you're going to be learning similar lessons, right? Um, it might be lessons that reinforce your privilege, um, but you're all, but you're learning them alongside your peers. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I've been working with is how, how do things travel um, because of the, those curricula that happen in schools? Um, what are the interventions that we can have? What does that look like um, practically for teachers? Um, and how can we put this together to, to understand that these contexts are not separate? The students, um, although the, the data is very separate, right? And, and the, the participants lead very separate lives. Um, 
there are certain things that happen in common around questions of violence. And so if we start attending to how there are similarities between these two contexts, um, we can better understand how violence travels. And then we can start really thinking about how do we interrupt it? And how do we interrupt it in ways that are helpful and what the people who are experiencing questions of violence um, are are feeling and thinking as they're experiencing um, different forms of aggression in their daily lives. Yeah, it's such such an interesting look at uh, how everything is interconnected. And I mean, the the more I grow old in my ripe old age of almost 28, <laughs> um, I mean, just the more you realize that everything is so interconnected. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to find something and truly uh, identify it as isolated, right? There's Absolutely. always other things that, that are at play. Absolutely. And I think that that becomes particularly important when we think about education. Um, I think that people tend to miss um, the interconnection nature, not just between what's taught, but what's not taught, right? Sure. So when I did my dissertation, uh, I was specifically looking at students of color in um, a predominantly white context. Okay. Um, and so one of the things that really struck me was one of the students said, look, the only time you learn about us, um, as this student I identified as an African-American female, um, the only time you learn about us is if we're in chains or breaking them. And I remember thinking as a, as a young teacher and a newer, uh, well, as still as a doc student at the time, wow, okay, that's right, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And so then how, is this, how does this spread, these mess- how do these messages spread across demographics, um, across places and spaces in the schools? And what does that mean for us? Because it's not that the school is this separate thing that happens, um, yeah. right? It's, it's so connected to uh, communities uh, around the school and then broader global communities. And so can we start thinking about what, what does this mean, right? Um, and, and what does it mean to, if we want to intervene in it as people who are seeking classrooms that are based in questions of equity and access for all of our students? Yeah, and that, I mean, that it sometimes becomes a challenge just especially if the teacher is not part of that community. Right. Which happens a lot. I mean, I, I live outside of the district where I teach, you know, so I, I don't live in that community. So, I mean, just coming in as an authority figure and trying to uh, simulate into that community and be a part of that community and have that community's perspective uh, can be really difficult as well. I think it can. I think that there um, certainly are a lot of important arguments to be made for how do we uh, make sure that we are a part of the communities that we're teaching in, um, having similarly taught in, in communities that I did not live, uh, and then one that I, in where I, I did live, uh, I think 10 minutes from the school. Um, aside from the beautifully short commute, uh, I think that there are things that can, that are translatable uh, in how we conduct ourselves, in the time we give, in how we give time to our communities that we're a part of as, as teachers. And I think <clears throat> when you're not living close by, then what we need to do is, is maybe be judicious about our time and where we spend it and, and things like that as well, right? So um, I think part of the concern I have is I have students now and I've had, uh, I give in services to, to schools. And I have teachers who will say, well, I don't live here, so I can't be a part of it, um, which is a really good cop out, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, right? But it doesn't necessarily account for what you can do. Uh, and so I don't ever want to release people from the responsibility of 
um, being a part of, in some ways, the communities in which they teach. But part of it too, it would it would be the same as saying, okay, well, I'm not queer, so I can't help queer youth, right? right? Um, or I'm not African American, so I can't help um, Black youth, or whatever the case may be. Um, and that's, I think that's selling short the position you have as a teacher, right? Um, I think in the United States, we tend to minimize the significance of teachers, both good and bad, right? Um, And at the same time, I think it's allowing us an escape from what what we should be doing as professionals as well. So I I think it's some, I mean, uh, from from my perspective, I I find uh, it difficult being a white male to uh, to be that leader and to be that um, facilitator of these conversations when I'm not part of the demographic that is um, being misrepresented or is is the one that's being oppressed. Um, so I I know that I I come from a different uh, viewpoint. So sometimes it's hard to have that conversation. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm I identify as a biracial woman um, and I identify as queer, and I think. Um, for me, that has allowed me to think differently with students than if I was, you know, a white, straight, cis teacher. Um, and at the same time, uh, I think part of it is just learning how to listen. And I say that because you know, I'm biracial, my mom is white, and I actually recently had this important conversation with her about the significance of listening, right? And, you know, as a, as a woman who was raising two brown children, what it meant for her as the mother to listen differently to the experiences of her own children. Um, And it really did get me thinking about how the significance of being an ally or an accomplice does not necessarily mean taking the lead, right? Um, Sometimes it's as as important as just sitting down and listening and being a part of the meeting and saying, okay, I, I don't have a voice or I shouldn't necessarily have a voice here, although I'm here to, to lend one if that's what's necessary. Um, and it's that step back that is sometimes really hard for people, and especially teachers who are, are our profession is a helping profession, right? Yeah. So I think a lot of teachers want to get in there and help, um, and they want to have the answers because that's another part of our profession currently in its current state anyway, is to somehow have the answers when sometimes you don't. Um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm cisgender. So working with a gender variant or trans youth, um, I didn't have that experience growing up. I didn't know what that was like. Uh, And we had a fairly large, the last uh, Genders and Sexualities Alliance that I ran, a fairly large uh, population of kids who were questioning as far as their gender identity and expression is concerned. And I remember thinking, okay, this is actually what I can do is listen. And then I can say, how can I help? What do you want me to do to make your your load a little easier? Um, And then use my privilege as a cisgender woman in the building to do that work, right? Um, so it's not always about having the answers. It's not always about being a, a leader, quote unquote, in the way that mm-hmm. we think we should be leading, but sometimes uh, about just learning how to listen and listen deeply and show care that way. Yeah, that that term, listen deeply. Uh, that was, uh, I, I did a training uh, when I, I worked in Colorado for a few years and we had somebody come in and the assignment was, ask somebody close to you what's one thing that you are currently doing that's getting in the way of having a stronger relationship with them and they're not allowed to ask the same thing to you so it was it was a one-way thing right so uh i asked my sister and she i hope she's okay with me sharing this but she's like you don't listen very well 
Like you, you in conversation, you just want to say the next thing. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. Like, so I'm very aware of that now. And I'm very grateful for her sharing that. And I, I hope I'm getting better <laughs> at it, but it's, yeah, it's, it's so hard uh, sometimes, especially like you said, when you are the authority figure uh, in a classroom or in a school to not be up in the front, being the preacher, you got to be the listener sometimes. Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem of our schools too, right? Is that um, we train our teachers to, think that they are the authority in the classroom. Um, and having taught 10 years in a variety of contexts, I'm going to go ahead and say that at best it's controlled chaos. <laughs> um, right? Mutiny is always around the corner. Um, Especially if you're a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yes. I, I remember fondly. Um, I taught, well, I taught Spanish, right? But I started out teaching uh, pre-K to second Spanish mm -hmm. and then worked to the middle school, high school level. And I can tell you that um, elementary uh teachers in early childhood, you've got your work cut out for you. And um, whether they mean to or not, they, they may yet just uh, start the revolution. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think that's part of it, too, is really checking ourselves very much in the way that we would check our bias against questions of race and, and um, homophobia, transphobia, what, whatever it is. Um, is it the same way that we need to check ourselves is the teacher who is the leader who knows everything. Um, and maybe make that a, a better part of our reflexive process uh, to be stronger educators. Yeah, and I think you are seeing a transition from teacher as the authority to teacher as the facilitator. I think just that psychological shift, um, at least I, I've kind of personally just heard in conversation have seen that little bit of a shift. Yeah, absolutely. And the same, same goes for having uh, difficult conversations with students, I suppose. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, um, I don't want to take up too much of your time. Thank you so much for, for the time that you have given. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on quick before we go to wrap up? Yeah, I, I want to, um, I think it's really important to, to set a reminder here that when we're talking about um, queerness and we're talking about, um, you know, sexual orientation, gender identity um, and expression mm -hmm. is to really think um, critically about intersectionality as well. I know intersectionality is one of these terms that has become so thrown around, sometimes I think it loses its, its significance. Um, but when we're, when we're thinking about queer youth in particular, um, I think it's really important to think about those intersections that can be further marginalizing. Um, I look at it and write about it like an echo chamber. And it's a question of, you know, it, the, there's marginalization that hits you and if there's more than one type of marginalization that impacts your ways of being and, and knowing and doing in the world, uh, I think it, I think that's worth thinking about and thinking deeply about, right? We're living at a time um, when self-harm and suicide rates for our queer youth are astronomical. Um, but when we think about what that might mean for um, a queer youth of color, we see even larger numbers of um, depression, self-harm, um, suicide attempts, things like that. Um, you know, 80% of queer youth of color, there was a, a study from the University of Connecticut, I want to say, um, reported depression. 80%, <laughs> that's so high, right? Yeah. Um, we think about it, almost 50% of queer youth of color um, have noted being um, verbally assaulted by their family members. Um, and so when we think about that, as it's compounded on how, um, if you are, are white and queer, um, right? I'm not saying that those struggles are any less, but there's something that happens that's compounded with 
um, 90, I think it was 90, 95% of youth of color um, report questions of bias around, around race. So then you have that large percentage of students who are feeling that bias really deeply. Um, and then you have it compounded by family members who might not be accepting of their queerness. Um, and then that's only compounded by questions of school funding, which I won't even begin to get into right now, um, and, and things that disproportionately harm our um, black and brown youth. And so these things are really important to think about. Um, it's important to reflect on the fact that 40% of our youth homeless population is queer, um, which, which is far too, far too high, right? Yeah. Um, and the, the prison population, I want to say that, um, gosh, I can't remember the exact statistic on this. Um, I had jotted down some point in time, but can't even remember it now. But the, the amount of students who are <clears throat> incarcerated, um, who are part of the juvenile um, facilities mm -hmm. in this country, it's something like 20% of them um, identify as LGBTQ plus wow. youth. Um, but rea realistically, only 5 to 7% of the population um, identify as queer or questioning in our country. So there are things that disproportionately hit queer youth to begin with. Um, and then we look at the numbers of pe people of color, youth of color, that are in um, the juvenile facilities or um, they're incarcerated even if they're not in juvenile facility, right? That's disproportionately, again, hit black and brown bodies across this country. And so um, when we're thinking about how we move in the world, questions of race and class um, are really significant. It's not just queerness that we need to focus on. Um, from my perspective, it's really thinking about all of those intersections that make that student that student. Um, and then thinking about how we're going to move in our classroom. What are we going to do as teachers on a daily basis uh, to be more accommodating, um, to be more respectful, to be more caring um, in particular ways that, that help um, students to be? Yeah. It's a great reminder um, just of uh, sometimes even how little we know of, of what's happening outside of our students' lives outside of school. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, thank you for that, that little addition. Um, okay. Let's move on then to our uh, exit ticket questions. These are the same four questions that I ask everyone who comes on. And the first one is, do you have a book recommendation that all teachers should go read? Yeah, uh, too many, actually. <laughs> yeah. um, I, you know, I want to um, just drop some names of people um, that might not have written books necessarily, um, but have, have strong work that you might want to consider. Okay. Um, Michael Dumas, Lance McCready, Bettina Love, um, uh, Lee Ayrton, um, who are just, who have really, really strong work. Um, Erica Miners has written some some good books that are, are good to check out, I think, for teachers. Um, she has one, Flaunt It, that was with Therese Quinn. Um, it's Queers Organizing for Public Educator, or for Education and Justice. Okay. Um, so that's a, a really strong one. She also has one um, that, that's for the children protecting um, innocence in a carceral state. I think those are really good places to start. But there are also readers, um, Chris Mayo and Molly Blackburn had put together a, a reader, which is an edited book um, for queer, trans, and intersectional theory in educational practice. Mm. So there are a lot of really strong um, things that I think 
are important for teachers to pick up and read. But I also think it's really important to put a plug in for um, having literature in the classroom. Um, and there are so many books these days that focus on LGBTQ plus youth um, that would be appropriate uh, starting at at birth <laughs> yeah. um, and, and moving forward to um, young adult literature as well. Yeah, making sure that those every student is represented in the readings assigned to them. Yeah, that that's a a, a good theme to to keep in mind. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I always ask my students um, if they can in twenty seconds name um, all the scientists that they can, right? And then I ask them to name all of the African American scientists that they can. And then there's there's usually a lot of silence. Um, and then ask them to name um, queer scientists. And then there's dead silence. Um, I think it's really important to have resources that are positive um, across, not just in science, but obviously across the disciplines um, and really thinking about having that representation in your classroom that's just available. Um, and even if it's a book that you're reading, I think one of the things that I always did as a K-12 educator was have books that were for me, quite frankly, that made some sort of a statement about the things that I was thinking about, um, even though it might not have been Spanish, for example, yeah. um, to let the kids ask questions. Yeah, fantastic. And actually, uh, did I read that you are you're either editing or you're written uh, a book uh, about the Black Lives Matter movement, right? Yeah. So um, the that's through SUNY Press, um, and that actually uh, is just in the last stages. Um, somebody's writing an afterwards uh, afterward for me for that one as well. So that's on Black Lives Matter and education. Um, my solo authored book is Assemblages of Violence in Education, um, Everyday Age Directories of Oppression. And both of those should be out um, hopefully in the spring of 2021. Um, I have no idea what production in COVID land is gonna look like, yeah, but true. <laughs> we'll see. But yes, those should well, both be out soon. There you go. Well, come the time, if you are listening to this uh, after those dates, uh, make sure you check out the show notes because if they are available, we will make sure to link them in there as well. Okay. All right. Number two, uh, what resource, either digital or hard copy, do you want teachers to go check out? Ooh, okay. Um, so <laughs> I have, as I'm glancing here, I have a list. And here's the thing. Um, there are a couple of things I think all teachers should have um, for resources. And I say that because I used to have cards in my classroom that I made up um, through Vista Print or something like that, that just had local resources printed on them. Local police numbers, um, homeless shelter numbers, youth center numbers, things like that, um, that kids could just stick in their wallets and just have on the go. Uh, but I think it's also really important to have a resource sheet, not just for yourself, but for your students in your classroom as well. Um, and I say that just because I think it's really significant to have those things um, at, at your fingertips, but also at the fingertips of, of your students. So sure. when I say that, um, first and foremost is, is a question of suicide prevention. Um, you know, as we know, as I said before, suicide rates are astronomical yeah. um, for um, LGBTQ plus youth um, in our, uh, for us. They say that suicide is the second leading cause of death for people 10 to 24, um, and LGB, um, excluding the T, um, because there is a difference between sexual orientation and gender identity and expression, um, contemplate suicide three times more than their um, than their than their straight counterparts, um, and they're five times as likely to attempt suicide. Um, for trans adults, they say that 40% of them have attempted suicide, and 92% of them have. Um, 
attempted suicide before the age of 25. So having those numbers, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the Trevor Project, um, and then there is a crisis text line these days because uh, we've moved to yeah. texting as, as a something that students are, are more comfortable with sometimes as sure. well. So having those three listed somewhere in a classroom um, becomes significant. I think it's important to have parent support. Um, so PFLAG, for example, um, has chapters all over the United States. Family Equality has chapters all over the United States. Um, and having not just the national numbers, but also local numbers available to students um, or, and or parents, right? So there are many times when students were struggling, I would say, well, here are some resources for your parents as well. Um, there is legal support that sometimes is necessary. So glad um, the GLBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders um, has a page that has uh, Know Your Rights, Lambda Legal. Um, I also tell people to have some school-based programs available, so places that they know to go look up lesson plans. So welcomingschools.org has some great lesson plans specifically for elementary school teachers. Um, the One Archives Foundation also has some great lesson plans for middle school, high school teachers. Glisten has some um, lesson plans across grade levels. And then the last couple categories I always encourage people to have available um, are some resources for homelessness. Um, because 40, as we said, 40% of, of the youth homeless population falls um, somewhere in the queer spectrum. Um, so there's the National Runaway Safe Line. Um, I know in the Philadelphia area, if you are a Philly teacher, um, there's the Attic Youth Center. So there are, there are lots of um, resources available. I think it's also important to have something um, for HIV and AIDS, right? So the National AIDS Hotline becomes important. Um, chemical dependency. Uh, becomes important. And I'm saying this because right now in many states, our health curriculum does not cover um, any of these things as far as uh, having a queer lens put on it. Um, they gotcha. say something like 20% of students, only 20% of students across the United States have reported um, a learning something positive about LGBTQ plus people in school uh, and or getting an education that is sex positive um, that's going to be talking about um, sexual relationships and or chemical dependency um, for LGBTQ plus youth. And that generally falls under um, the, the curriculum, the health curriculum. Uh, and then the last thing is a question of domestic violence. Um, the US National Domestic Violence Hotline has a number. There's also a rape, um, abuse and incest national network I think that people should be connected to. Um, I say that just because uh, there are cases of LGBTQ youth that um, are still reporting Questions of um, sexual assault, sometimes from family members, um, sometimes from other people. Um, you know, if we look at the unfortunate statistics of trans women of color who have been sexually assaulted um, and physically assaulted in other ways um, and murdered in this country, we can see how these trends get pushed out into the communities. Um, but having those, not just for questions of, of sexual violence, um, We've seen cases go up as people have been isolated in their homes during COVID too. So this becomes particularly relevant. Yeah. But if you're a queer youth that doesn't have support at home, um, you might need to talk to somebody about questions of violence sure. um, and, and what that might look like. So I always say um, to teachers, when I give in services, to make sure that you have uh, resources across those categories, suicide prevention, um, parental support, legal support, school-based programs, homelessness, um, HIV and AIDS, uh, chemical dependency and domestic violence to make sure that 
the student is supportive as a whole um, throughout what they might be doing. Yeah, absolutely. And boy, I don't know how many how many you listed off there, but uh, you had sent me a, a, a document with with all of those listed. So we'll make sure that uh, we will post that in the show notes so that that will be available for you to go check out there. All right. All check right, out the thanks. show notes, folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what would be one piece of advice that you want to give teachers, particularly those who are early in their careers? Uh, I think the best advice that I give my students um, or that I would give any teacher is to think about um, questions of respect again um, mm -hmm. and how you want to move with that in the forefront of what you do. But then as we've been talking about today, really examining yourself um, and never letting go of that. I've had students who say, well, I feel like I'm, I'm set. And I'll say to them, um, particularly young teachers, if you feel like you know everything about students um, and everything about teaching, then just retire yeah. or, or find a different profession if you're that young into it. Um, because I think that we should never stop, we should never think that we're set. Um, I have a friend uh, who wrote a book, a brilliant book on eugenics and education, Annie Winfield. Um, and she says in it that in our moments of self being the most self-congratulatory, those are actually the moments that we need to be the most self-reflective. Um, and so I always encourage teachers across experiences to continue being reflective, reflexive, um, and to really, really think about your bias and how that impacts other people. Because as you said, it might sting a little for you, but it's going to sting a lot worse when that comes out sideways in implicit and explicit ways to students. Yeah. And going back to uh, <clears throat> just that idea, I, one of my quotes that I've heard that I've kept with me is that in nature, there is only growth and decay. There is no uh, being static, right? So if you if you get to a point in your career where you're like, yeah, I'm good. I don't need to learn anymore. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm just taking it day by day or whatever, like that's a point where you need to be that self-reflective and say, you know, if you feel like you're good, you're probably actually decaying, right? You're probably actually going backwards, right? There's only, only ever growth. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, if anybody wants to reach out to you, uh, if they've got any questions or they want to follow up with uh, something that you said, uh, where would be the best place to send them? Uh, probably to my university address, um, which is uh, B as in boy, FW5188 at PSU.edu. Um, so that's probably likely the best uh, method of finding me. All right, there you go. And again, that will be linked in our show notes page. So uh, Dr. Bonnie Wozlik, thank you so much for joining us on the Jabadoo Education Podcast. This was a blast. Uh, I had a great conversation with you and uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll follow up with you and uh, stay in touch with uh, those books that hopefully will be coming out soon and uh, just stay up to date on everything that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much um, for the time today and, and for running a great show for teachers. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks. I told you. I told you those exit ticket questions were going to feel like you were drinking from a fire hose. <laughs> but again, everything that she said is, is linked on our show notes page. So make sure you go check that out. But wow, what a great conversation. Uh, thank you again to Bonnie Wozniak for joining me. Uh, and just one of the things that I wanted to highlight before I send you out here is this idea of intersectionality. Right? She mentioned it and I had to go look it up because I wasn't too familiar with it. But it's this idea of looking at uh, a group of people um, as if they are, because they are, they are part of multiple marginalized groups, 
right? And and some of these statistics that she shared there towards the end just really hit me that 80% of uh, queer youth of color reported depression. 50% uh, have been verbally assaulted by their family members. 40% of the youth homeless population identifies as queer. The prison incarceration rate for youth, 20% identify as uh, queer or questioning, when in reality only 5 to 7% of the general population identifies this. This is a pattern, right? You can see it. It's in the statistics, right? There's something that uh, needs to be done to make sure that uh, these students of ours that are part of these multiple marginalized groups are feeling the warmth and welcome that we provide as teachers. Um, and that just hit me uh, really well. And the other thing that, that she helped me realize, she, she gave me a new lens to look through, was I mentioned, I, th- I think I've said it a couple of times, that you know being a, a, a white, straight male, uh, kind of I, I feel guilty sometimes of trying to have a voice in, this, in these instances, right? Because I know my privilege. But what she said, I hope you didn't miss it. She said, use your privilege to help marginalized groups. And I, I wanted to highlight just for myself, it, it doesn't mean that I'm going to be their voice, but I hope that I can be their megaphone, right? I'm not going to choose the battles, but I'll fight alongside with them when one arises, right? And this, this shift in mentality, um, it, it hit me uh, really well right there. And I just hope that uh, you got something out of that too. So um, yeah, great conversation. Uh, I hope you got something out of it. And yeah, go check out the show notes page. Again, jabadoo.com slash show 12. Uh, go check out the Facebook group, facebook.com slash group slash jabadoo. And until next time, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice, and that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content, and it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you. I appreciate you. And I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast.